also Alex Karp is at Davos, the World Woke Economic Forum, as I call it. But regardless, at least you get a nice few interviews with CEOs and business leaders. Let's listen to what Alex Karp had to say in his first interview with CNBC. Alex Karp, thank you for being here. I'm nice very to happy. See you. How many times have we been doing this? I, many, many, many times. times. Yeah. And we've been through a bit of a roller coaster in terms of the economy, in terms of the world, geopolitics and everything. Where, what is your sense now and what's do you think the sensibility is here right now? Look, we've been meeting for many, many years. Um, and when we first met here and you uh, filmed me, the idea that the world is disjointed, violent, unlikely to be pure and global, that world leaders would fight more than they get along, that there would be derision and division in major democracies, and that we'd see a war in Europe looked like the nightmare fantasy of uh, uh, something that you would not believe could happen. And of course, we built our company on the idea that the world is disjuncted, violent, but could be made better. I think the core issue for people behind closed doors at Davos is, okay, clearly the world is not going to be the way we thought it is. It clearly is not that, not going to be more peaceful, less disjointed. How can we still make the world actually function in a separated, disjointed world where there is war in the heart of Europe, where Western allies are having to mobilize against their adversaries, including Russia and China, where people still want to have industry, where supply chains are disrupted, and where we have pandemics? By the way, that's the solution of software. Software enables agility for organization. And the issue in the current dates is you have governments, organizations using software that is decades years old, that is no real value, and therefore cannot enable this agility from an organizational point of view. I believe in the future, all companies are going to build, be built via the use of a digital twin. In other words, you have the ability to simulate, predict, prevent outcomes, decisions, and optimize for different metrics. And that is the primary use of software. And you can see that organizations in which are benefiting from this conflict, that are benefiting from this kind of lack of um, stability that we're having within the world, these are the companies that are built upon good software solutions. And that is foundational for companies in the modern era. And by the way, look at his hair. His hair is looking unreal today. Wow. And also, he predicted this. Everyone thought he was crazy. He predicted it. Give him some credit where credit is due to all the bears out there. He predicted this instability. And now it's here. Personal optimism or pessimism, though, right now, I mean, there's a lot of pessimism here. Yeah, I'm, look, we built our company and I believe in addressing the world as it is. We've built our company around the way the world is now. I am pessimistic about the near future, very optimistic about what we can do to help that. Um, so I, I agree with people around here, but you got to understand both in the, especially in the tech industry and to some extent here, but you have people that were just certain they were going to win. Everything was going to break their way. Sure. No one would go out with them in high school, but they're going to own the high school <laughs> and they're going to own the whole state and everything's going to work out. And you know, they have gazillion dollars and all of a sudden all these assumptions aren't actually true. And you know, they're in a little bit of a depression funk. Uh, and that's that's normal when things do, are not breaking your way, when the world has changed in a way. But, you know, there's a lot of ways to actually make the world a better place. First of all, the West can show we actually have superior technology and we're showing that. When you said you're pessimistic short term, what do you mean by that? And by the way, this is why I do not invest into companies like China, because the West fundamentally, despite the flaws, it is centered upon free-flowing of information idealistically with incentives that are aligned towards entrepreneurialism in comparison to staying on the right side and politicizing and 
playing gossip and status games. At least that is the ideal. When you're in nations such as China, for example, or Russia, you can't actually find the truth. You can't go truth-seeking. The reason is why is because you're disincentivized. If you go truth-seeking, if you go against the perceived truth, then you're demonized, you're cast aside, and you're not ever going to have a successful life. That is why people don't do truth-seeking in the majority of these dictatorship-styled political nations. You need to incentivize truth-seeking. You need to incentivize entrepreneurialism. And that is what the U.S. does best. Well, I mean, I think that we are just learning as world organizations how to live in a world that is very different than we thought. So I don't think the war is likely to end in, in, in Ukraine. I don't. You don't. I, I think, look, it's very hard to know what's going to happen, but you have an adversary who is zero sum. If Putin goes home and says, hey, we lost, he will lose his life. His friends will lose their life. They'll lose all their money. Uh, and and, it, and he'll go to his grave feeling that he lost, which he does not want to do. We in the West, most of us in the West, correctly believe if we allow these kind of things to happen, if we allow people to violate the sovereignty of a land and rape, pillage, and destroy people who are innocent in that land, that this will set a horrible precedent. So we can't allow that to happen. Also, we've shown that we develop superior technology and we, combined with heroes on the ground, we can actually win. Uh, and so this is just a, still a class of culture. That's a pessimistic view geopolitically of potential war and the like. What's your view of the economy and the ramifications? And maybe it's a ramification of war. No, I think I think the ch chief thing hurting the economy is we're in an unknown zone where things are happening we didn't plan, like wars, trying to deal with the wars, inflation. What do, we're also highly divided inside of our, our countries in the West. What do you make of you have a lot of corporate clients here. It's not, it's not just uh, governments. The feeling from them, their ability to buy, spend more or not right now. Well, they're going to just like in a war situation, because our clients are not in a war situation where they're, it's like not like the Ukraine. But de facto, it's the same thing. We have to survive under much harsher conditions. And what are they gonna do? They're gonna figure out what works, what doesn't, what's a PowerPoint, what's a fraud, what's actually transforming the business. American businesses here by and large have a huge advantage, which America underestimates. What makes Americans interesting? We are very, very pragmatic. We adapt, we learn, we change. You said, what's a PowerPoint and what's a fraud? And the reason I, I raise it is a lot of- That is what I was saying. When it comes to the culture of the US, when it comes to the culture of the West more generally, there is a culture of entrepreneurialism. There is a culture of agility. There is a culture, idealistically, of change and innovation. That is why the US has been an innovation leader. This is no kind of fallacy. The US has come up with all the mad radical innovations, specifically during World War II at Radar, one example in which literally transformed the direction of the war. The same is going to be true in the future, I believe. And it's interesting, Morgan Stanley put out a report uh, a while ago saying that in times of high cost of capital and high cost of labor, organizations are going to look towards software solutions. But I've criticized this in the past, especially in relation to palliative stating, that unfortunately the organization has too much friction associated with adoption when it comes to the lack of developmental community, therefore not giving developers easy access to the platforms and therefore inabilities for opting in for the palliative software solution as an outsider within your organization, in conjunction with the fact they had a very small sales force, as well as the fact that just until a few quarters ago, they didn't have consumption-based pricing. They had kind of all the weak type pricing, which was causing a lot of friction when it comes to adoption of the software solution. And especially in times of chaos, you need to ease the friction associated with adoption. Alec Carp has said for so long that Palantir thrives within times of chaos. Well, we need to see that now. And I think we should start seeing that now, especially when you consider the developmental community ramp up, the sales force ramp up, 
and other factors such as the new pricing model in which should ease friction associated with adoption. People who are running around either trying to pretend they're businesses like yours or pretend they're all sorts of businesses. What do you think of the washout that's happened in Silicon Look, Valley, across the world? In Look, terms it's of very, very, very hard uh, to be joyous because people are in pain. It, but I mean, we compete against PowerPoints and basic and technology that is useful but not transformative. What this situ what situation like the current one we're in, whether it's war in Ukraine, like why did they adopt Palantir? Because you can't afford a PowerPoint or a PowerPoint when your life is on the line. What's going to ha What's happening to businesses? Their revenues are going down. There's highly the regulation is going up. Their workforce is unhappy for lots of reasons. They have to somehow rebuild their culture and attack. And that exposes things in your business that are both good, bad, ugly, and transformative. Right. Um, and of course, everybody wants to be like, there's the palantir of my cockroach. And this is what I've said for such a long time. The situation in Ukraine, the events in Ukraine are analogous and are leading variables as to what we are going to see within the commercial segment. Fundamentally, palantir transformed Ukraine into a juggernaut. That's the truth. The software is absolutely staggering when it comes to the potential for use cases and the symbiosis of AI and humans in conjunction. Palantir was the name at the very top of the list when it came to the transformation and the fact that it transformed Ukraine into something which was very unprecedented before this conflict ever started. I've mentioned in the past that this is analogous to the radar back in World War II in which the radar totally transformed the course of the war and thus history too. The same is true of Palantir's software solution. Palantir transformed has transformed this far the course of the war, the course of the safety in, within the West, and the course of future conflicts, and therefore I believe would be fundamental for adoption from a governmental standpoint, but simultaneously from a commercial standpoint too. The war in Ukraine is analogous, it's a leading variable when it comes to the commercial segment adoption, I believe. Com farm, like, and it's like, we are the best pound here for making sure that cockroaches and others get proper nutrition. And yeah, that works under bad conditions, but it does not, under good conditions, does not work under bad conditions. What do you make, though, of the valuations that have, have taken place in Techland, including to your own company? Look, we've been at this for almost 20 years. Our valuation has been very high and very low. What we're very interested in is how is the business doing? I run this business for better or worse. I know how the business is doing. And by the way, over the medium term, not the short term, valuations do affect our reflect the health, integrity, and success of a business. And in the short term, that fluctuation of valuations expose people are out on the beach naked. You know, if you're out swimming naked, which by the way, I embrace, it's kind of hard when the, you know, it's just like if you're out here without the proper coat, it will, it exposes the weakness in certain businesses. In the end, especially in America, we're adaptive. The stronger businesses will grow, thrive, expand, and we'll end up well, with a much well, What do you tell investors who say, look, this stock has fallen, uh, I mean, no, I tell, can tell you, well, investors, I tell our employees, look, there's market conditions that affect. Okay, so this is the point for Alex Kopp. If this is true, if Palantir does thrive within chaos, then we need to see growth. Fundamentally, we need to see growth. If this is what he's been saying for many, many years now, we need to see growth. Times of chaos are here. The sales force is ramping up. Developmental communities are ramping up. All of these things are now aligning. I want to see some growth and some significant growth too. There's no point of this being a niche player. This has to be a big, big player if it's worth an investment. It's a share price. But is it market conditions? Is it the way the market views your particular company? That um, there are investors who are frustrated with what they call dilution, yeah, right? Great. There, there are there are legitimate and uh, concerns we have to address. Dil dilution. What are the revenues going to be? Where are the revenues going to develop? How transformative are the products? 
all legitimate concerns. What the investors we have primarily, our most important investors, are co-workers. What we believe is our business is stronger than it's ever been. Right. And we have a lot of evidence that convinces us. We believe our conviction will, will convince the world over a multi-year period. And that's what I care about. Right. And, and that, but the, uh, the question is, were the valuations before? When this stock was a $40 stock, yeah, look, do you I've, say to yourself, that was uh, Alice look, in Wonderland uh, look, crazy? Okay, that is music to my ears because you can see he's acknowledging the shareholder concerns, but simultaneously, he's not being short-sighted within his vision. You want someone that is acknowledging shareholder returns, they're acknowledging the fact that shareholders are involved in this business, they're acknowledging and they are shareholder orientated, but simultaneously, they're growing the business for 10, 15 plus years down the line. That is the vision that I want to see. That is music to my ears. And I do think it's true. The company is as strong as it's ever been. There are some outstanding debates and there are some concerns, don't get me wrong, but when you're looking at the long-term vision of this company, I'm still very optimistic, far more optimistic than I was at when the stock was trading at ridiculous valuation such as $40. Let, let, let me tell you something. One of the things that's been most helpful about writing this company is that when you're kind of like outside the norm, a little bit of a freak show, like I never thought we were that good when the share price was 40, whatever. I didn't think we're that bad when the share price is six or whatever it is. I know that I know what makes the business strong and I'm focused on that. And I honestly never thought I was that perfect at 40. I don't think I'm that bad now. I think it's just like you work on the business, you work on the, you have a huge problem if you're like full on like normal Silicon Valley capitalists pretending you care about altruism or whatever, that you actually judge your life by the share price. Let me just ask you one other investor related question, which is, who should the investor base compare your company to? So some people say, oh, it's a consulting company. We should. Exactly, exactly, exactly. That is what I've been saying. Read the book Outsiders. It's an amazing book. The book Outsiders basically speaks about Henry Singleton and a range of investors and businessmen who outperform markets by 12x. Yet you've probably never heard of them. They're not hype companies. They're outsider CEOs. They remind me a lot of Alex Karp. They don't like speaking to Wall Street. They don't like speaking to the media. They rarely did interviews. They were focused on shareholders, but simultaneously they were focused on the long term. They really pushed out all the noise and fundamentally they got a return which was staggeringly higher in comparison to the indexes. And the point being, you can be shareholder orientated without constantly bringing up the fact that the share, share price has gone down or gone up. It doesn't matter what it does in the short term. Shareholder orientation can come in a range of ways and the role of a CEO is to invest in existing operations, it's to do share buybacks, it's to acquire other companies, so on and so forth and a range of other procedures in which can simultaneously benefit the company in the long term, but also benefit shareholders too. That is what you're aiming for. I don't want to hear a CEO that is constantly talking about the share price going up and down. I don't care. I want to focus on the long-term metrics of the company to ensure that the company is simultaneously shareholder orientated for the long term and therefore to ride that wave. So this is music to my ears. Alex Clark is an iconoclastic CEO. He's an outsider. He's someone who is different. And this is what you want. You don't want a Mr. fucking golf guy that plays golf with white teeth and, you know, talks about how amazing his company is, pumps his company and tells everyone to buy it. You don't want that. Look at Accenture. It should be a multiple of that or not. Other people say, oh, it's a software company. It should there, be some, there, it's somewhere it should there, be in the okay. middle, maybe. You know what? But if what you, is it? If, if you doubt what our company is, talk to the Ukrainians, talk to the CEO of Hertz, talk to BP, talk to the special forces. They'll tell you this product saved my life or made my company better. And, you know, if you don't have to believe me, believe them. Um, there was a fascinating uh, piece in the Washington Post that really described what uh, Palantir has done and its involvement uh, in Ukraine in a very detailed way. I mean, you, you've alluded to it in some of the interviews that we've done over the years. How, 
how is that changing the business? And, and now that that's public, if you will, is it changed the kind of conversation you can have? Look, we built PG, which single-handedly stopped uh, uh, the rise of the far right in, 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 in Europe. We built Foundry, which uh, was just was used to distribute the COVID vaccine and saved millions of lives globally. We built what we call multi-constellation and what's often called the digital kill chain. Um, and they're category defining products. So when you deliver these products to the market, just honestly, people say this isn't gonna exist, this isn't right. valuable, but then it changes the market. And then the market is the Palantir market. Now that doesn't mean everyone in the world's gonna buy our product, but it means most of the sensible people in the world are gonna define, buy from the category we defined. And that is exactly what's happening in the war fighting context. And it's happening because of, I mean, you have to look at this. You have a small country that galvanizes its country, brings its heroism forward, and they're up against the third most important army in the world, and they win. They, every single country in the world that finds out, that asks, well, how did you do it? What can we do? What is the cost of that? How long does the implementation take? I always ask you this, but given the increasing tensions, it appears between the US and China. That is something that I can't necessarily get my head around. That is a huge, huge thing that has happened. And I don't think we should underestimate how important that is. And sure, it's not only Palantir, but fundamentally Palantir has probably been the most important technology. It's definitely been the, the most influential. It's probably the most powerful technology that there is. The media constantly talks about it. It's labeled by generals in the army, so on and so forth. Palantir fundamentally, and it's true, you can see in the UK after the COVID-19 vaccine rollout, in the UK's kind of governmental admission and letter last year, they mentioned how the lessons that we've learned from COVID from companies such as Palantir were going to leverage from, from now on because it was so transformative. I'd rather invest in deep technological companies in which have a small sales force that is ramping. They've acknowledged their concerns and they're growing in the future. I'd rather invest in that deep, revolutionary and innovative technology in comparison to a weak, slip, flimsy piece of technology, which is a sales force of a thousand bloody people. Where are we? And what are our capabilities? And what do you worry about? The, the, we are very lucky the Chinese, Chinese uh, government is very focused on internal security. U.S. has to heavily, heavily, and its allies, focus on external security. We are better at software than the Chinese, but we're also better at focusing on something we care about. How do you repel a, an adversary that wants to invade your territory? It should be the single focus right. of the, and we are, partly because we're better at it and partly because that's the need. If we had a conversation here in 10 years time, would China have taken Taiwan, tried to take Taiwan? What do you think happens? I think it largely depends on how powerful our software hardware hero quotient is. If we continue to do what we're doing in the Ukraine, look, if Russia had known what Russia knows now, I think there's a pretty strong chance they would not have invaded. SPACs. What was the lesson of investing in SPACs? Most companies were not prepared for bad weather like we were. Stay away from companies that are not prepared for bad weather. That was the lesson, but you invested in, in companies that were, were not prepared for bad weather. Exactly. We should be more investing in ourselves, not investing in companies that are not prepared for bad weather. How did weather. that happen? Look, we are the world's best, in my view, at building software before people need the software. You make mistakes along the way. We made a mistake, we corrected it, we're moved on. Wow, very interesting. And interesting answer too. Fundamentally, as I mentioned, a major role of CEOs efficient capital allocation skills and the generation of capital allocation too. So those in conjunction are really important metrics to judge a CEO. And if carp, there has been some disadvantages towards the strategy when it comes to investing within SPACs. And it didn't work. It didn't work. We acknowledged that it was a failure. We acknowledged that there was mistakes and he recognizes his mistake. 
So that was it. That was the latest of Alex Carpadavos. Let me know your thoughts and I'll see you soon.